0: Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So Dr. Alan Shore, who I, I had not heard of until recently, he's from UCLA. He's known as the Einstein of Psychiatry. And if you could be known as the Einstein of anything, that means you really know what you're talking about. Um, but his work over the last few years has spurred exponential growth in the field of neuroscience. He's a, he's a neuroscientist, right? So one of his major contributions, and I'll just be honest, I haven't read any of the guy's stuff. He's, he's Einstein level. Have any of you read Einstein? No, but you read the people who can read his stuff. So I've read uh, a book by, by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks called The other half of church. And they summarize Dr. Shore's uh, neuroscience research like this. Here's what it says. Our brain needs fuel to run properly. The fuel that our brains were intended to run on is joy. Very simply, joy is what you experience when you can see in another person's face and eyes that they are happy to be with you. Some of you may have just experienced that as we did this time of grace and peace. We see in someone's face, I'm just happy that you're here, right? That's joy. And I love that definition of joy. It's not just happiness that we can experience um, from time to time when our, our circumstances of our life are, are doing well. No, joy is what it feels like to be seen, to be known, and to be loved by others, and ultimately by God. If we're honest, Many of us live most of our lives without a lot of joy. Our joy fuel, so to speak, in our relationships with God or others is is running on empty, or at least it's not as full as we want it to be. We desire to be more joyful, but something is missing, right? Well, how do we actually become more joyful? How do we actually have that, that experience, that feeling of being known and loved? The starting point, and this isn't the only way to do it, but the starting point for increasing joy in our lives is gratitude. Gratitude is what opens us up to know how God has been present and with us, how God's face, if you will, has been shining on us Not only in our past, but also in our lives here and now. So as we look at this passage that Kristen just read for us, we're going to see a compelling example for how to practice gratitude that's rooted not only in what God, again, not only in what God has done for us, but in the person of God, in who God is in relationship with us. But before we dive straight into our passage, I want to return and and look at some context, remind us kind of where we are in the bigger picture of not only the Gospel of Luke, but the scriptures. All right, so if you've been here the last few weeks, months, we've been devoting the majority of this year to studying the life and teachings of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, this one of four accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. In Luke, we've seen everything from way back in Advent, right, the birth of Jesus, to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, to his time working miracles, healing the sick, preaching the good news. We've read about how Jesus never shied away from difficult topics, but he embraced conversations about money, wealth, generosity, anxiety, radical hospitality, the cost of following Jesus, and and so much more. We've seen how the teachings of Jesus were not only profoundly meaningful back then, but that they actually have real and serious implications for our lives here and now. And most importantly, we've been trying our best to take seriously the invitations of Jesus to not just hear what he has to say, but to really learn how to put it into practice, to become apprentices, disciples, students of the master teacher as we follow Jesus through the ups and downs of modern life in a city like Chicago. Simply put, we've been trying to walk alongside Jesus to learn what it really looks like to join God in the renewal of all things. That's the heartbeat of our church here at Missio Day. So as we look back at our passage uh, for today, I really wanna begin by by asking and noticing, what can we learn about Jesus? What does this text and this passage show us about Jesus? So to do that, we're gonna really immerse ourselves in the story and try to see what Luke wants us to know about Jesus, But secondly, we're then going to ask, what does this mean for us today? What can we learn not only about Jesus, but what can we learn about this grateful Samaritan and how we can become grateful people as well? So first, let's look at this story. We're just going to kind of go verse by verse and, and immerse ourselves in it. The story we just read is a snapshot into one moment in the life of Jesus. It's not a parable, which we've been studying a lot of. Parables are these kind of uh, made-up stories about how the world works, where there's sort of a message that Jesus is trying to teach. But rather, this is a a real encounter that Luke is recording from the life of Jesus. And it starts with Jesus kind of on the road. He's making his way back to Jerusalem. And starting right there with the geography, making his way back to Jerusalem, is is really important. So let's look at uh, verse 13. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Right at the start, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is in the borderlands. Jesus is on the border between Samaria and Galilee, and this would have been a place that was outside of Jewish territory. It would have been dangerous for a person like Jesus to be here. Immediately, when the original hearers of this text or readers heard this story, their ears would have perked up when they they heard that this was where Jesus was. Their attention would have been grasped. Why is Jesus walking there? What's going to happen to him there, right? Something important is coming. And that brings us to verses 12 and 13. As he entered a village, 10 men with skin diseases approached him. Keeping their distance from him, they raised their voices and said, "'Jesus, Master, show us mercy.'" So 10 men with skin diseases approach Jesus. This translation, skin diseases, is a a bit more literal. You've probably heard the the word lepers. Same thing, but back then, leprosy was kind of a catch-all term um, for various skin diseases that were common at the time. So anyway, skin diseases, leprosy, I'm going to kind of use them interchangeably. But here we see... one of the primary reasons why Jesus was walking through the borderlands. These skin diseases were highly contagious, and lepers were kind of treated as outcasts from society. They were forced to leave their families and leave their homes to live with other lepers on the outskirts of civilization in the borderlands between towns. Lepers could not have any contact with people who were not lepers, right? Because they, they had this painful, deadly, really, really contagious disease, okay? So they, it's, it's terrible. I mean, they had to scavenge for food. They couldn't go to, to the markets. This was a really, really tough life. But Jesus intentionally walks through the borderlands to make himself proximate to put himself near these lepers. As we see all throughout the gospel, Jesus actually goes out of his way to be near the borders so that he can be available to marginalized people who are sent out, marginalized people wherever he goes. And that's exactly what happens, right? Ten lepers approach Jesus. Now, now, one thing about leprosy, I don't think we totally understand the seriousness of leprosy because, well, you and I, we've never lived through a time where if we got sick, we would have had to quarantine from people, right? We, we, it just doesn't make sense to us that we would have to distance ourselves from people if we got sick, right? We, we don't get that. Um, but thankfully, these lepers actually understood social distancing long before the CDC had to put in the six-foot rule. My favorite one I saw back in, like, the early days of COVID was you had to be, like, six hot dog lengths away from people in Chicago. Uh, we, we measure everything by, by food here. Um, but anyway, these, these lepers knew that, right? So they, they approach Jesus, and they, they keep their distance. So they, they raise their voices and ask him, Jesus. Master, show us mercy. And notice how these lepers address Jesus. I think it's really important for us to see. Yes, they call him Jesus, but then they call him Master. And we've been, we've been making our journey through the Gospel of Luke. The only other time that anyone calls Jesus Master, it's one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 who knew him, who walked with him. They're the ones who, who Luke chooses to use this word Master for. And it's interesting, the connotation here by the way, is not meant to drum up images of like a slave master who, who uses power by domination. No, this is, this is a master of spiritual power. This is one with spiritual authority to heal diseases, to even raise from the dead. So by calling him master, it's as if these lepers are asking Jesus to do what they actually believe he's able to do. They ask him to show them mercy by healing them of their disease. Verse 14, when Jesus saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they left, they were cleansed. I think Luke is really intentional here in pointing out the order in which these events occur. After they ask for mercy, Jesus immediately instructs the lepers to go, to go to the priests. This would have actually been the normal sort of procedure for, for someone who had a skin disease and, and had been cured, right? They, the Jewish law kind of said that they couldn't really re-enter the community until they went to, to the priests and got this certificate that showed they were once unclean. That's the language they would use. And now they're clean. But Jesus told them to go to the priests before he healed them. He's doing things a little bit out of order, which shows us that these lepers had to have a level, at least a small level of faith and trust that Jesus was going to do something for them because they were willing to walk away before he even did anything. And it's as they walk away that they're cleansed of their disease. They're healed of their leprosy. This is an amazing miracle. This is really, really powerful. But this is actually where the story gets interesting verses 15 and 16 one of them when he saw that he had been healed returned and praised God with a loud voice he fell on his feet he fell on his face at Jesus's feet and thanked him this one man noticing the significance the depth the beauty of his healing moment can't help but turn around and run back to Jesus praising God with a loud voice maybe even yelling out hallelujah or singing In in a different language. Glory to God in the highest, right? Just praising God with his whole self. He can't help but do that. This isn't an obligatory thank you, right? This is messy, weepy, intensely powerful gratitude, praise, thanksgiving. This isn't just mental or, or spiritual gratitude, this is embodied gratitude the kind of gratitude that causes you to fall down on your face at someone's feet. This man's body was healed, full-fledged, and that elicits a fully embodied response to Jesus for all that God has done for him. It gets even more powerful because Luke waits until this very moment to tell the reader that this man, the only man who turned around to praise and thank God, is a Samaritan you've probably heard if you've if you've heard about the story of the good Samaritan or or some other stories but one of the powerful things here is Samaritans and Jews they hated each other they avoided each other as as much as possible right Jews really looked down and, and treated Samaritans as inferior because in their past they had uh, married foreigners from a non-Jewish background and so Jews hated Samaritans But Luke wants us to see, once again, that Jesus intentionally spends time seeking out marginalized people. And this man was not only marginalized because of his leprosy, he was doubly marginalized. He was even more marginalized because he was a Samaritan. And that Luke just wants us to see how how this interaction for Jesus is, is so interesting and powerful. Verses 17 to 19 say, Jesus replied, weren't 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? No one returned to praise God except this foreigner. Then Jesus said to him, get up and go. Your faith has healed you. <clears throat> Jesus draws out the fact that only one of the 10 returned to praise God. We don't know. We don't know if the other men were Samaritans or from Galilee, right? Jesus was kind of on the border between Samaria In Galilee, but Jesus names that this man is a foreigner. He wants to further highlight the beauty of this response. The Samaritan was willing to lie down and worship at the feet of someone who should have been his enemy. And Jesus was willing to heal someone who should have been his enemy. This, original readers would have remembered this parable of the the Good Samaritan, right? It's all about crossing borders to love your your neighbors or even your enemies. Uh, One of the commentaries I read is called Working Preacher, and I just loved this note about what Luke is trying to accomplish all, all throughout the entire gospel. This is what they say. We find a narrative development in Luke from love your enemy to love your worst enemy to see your worst enemy no longer as an enemy but as an agent of God's love. Luke is building a case for indiscriminate love and radical inclusion. Jesus, his life, his words are living proof of what it looks like to love your enemies. And then the story ends here. Jesus lovingly tells the man to get up and go. He sends him off with affirmation and encouragement. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. This one sentence contains so much power, beauty, theological depth. And I want to focus on the healing part. But before I do that, let me just make a quick comment about the Samaritan's faith. Your faith has healed you. At first glance, I think we might read this sentence as if it is saying that the Samaritan was healed because he had faith. And this for, for many of us has been taken so out of context and it's caused great damage to people who are hurting. Some have been told that if they only had more faith, they would be healed. But let me be clear about this. Lack of healing does not equal a lack of faith. Not at all, not at all. Lack of healing does not equal a lack of faith. But what Jesus is saying here is that this leper's faith-filled response to what Jesus had done, actually allows him to have an even deeper experience of what healing and salvation look like in Jesus. Let me say a little bit more about that. And I don't really quote Greek often in my my sermons, but I think it's really helpful for us to see here. The Greek word that is used for healed, your faith has healed you, is the same word that's used many times in the New Testament for the word saved. So we could just translate this verse, your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has saved you. It is so important that we see the intimate connection here that's really laced throughout the New Testament of the relationship between healing and salvation. Um, Many of us, not all of us, but many of us were taught a sort of shallow, transactional view of salvation that really focused on getting into heaven when we died. right? We were taught that we're gonna be saved from hell, but we missed out on the fact that we're currently saved into an ongoing relationship with God, who is the healer, the savior of all brokenness, right? The word salvation, if you, if you look up the root word, again, nerding out a little bit here, it comes from the word salve. What is a salve? A salve is a, a healing ointment or a balm that we rub on our skins or, or we use to heal a wound. In a similar way, salvation is a process of healing from our wounds, not only our physical wounds, but also our emotional, mental, spiritual, relational wounds. Salvation is a holistic healing from our wounds. And while salvation is something that will happen in the future when Christ returns, it's also something we experience here and now. This leper who was healed had a tangible experience of what it means to be saved, not only in a spiritual sense, but in his body David Luce puts it like this. I found this so helpful. The leper is not just healed, but is made whole, restored, drawn back into relationship with God and humanity. In all these ways, he has been, if we must choose a single word, saved. That is what salvation is all about. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card that we can present when we get into heaven. Salvation is a reality that we experience here and now through healing, wholeness, restoration into relationship with God and one another. And it may not be this immediate, uh, miraculous healing like this leper had, right? But all of us, are on a healing journey where we're one step at a time healing emotionally, physically, spiritually, holistically, right? And one day in Jesus, we will be fully healed another way to put it is that the leper, after having this experience, was was saved. He was already saved, but also one day he will be fully saved, fully healed. When someone experiences that kind of salvation, a salvation that can heal deadly diseases, can restore relationships and, and reconcile outcasts back into their community, when someone has that kind of salvation, they can't help but praise and thank God. That kind of salvation is powerful. It's profoundly good news that it, 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 like, how could you not want to fall down at the feet of someone who can save you and heal you in that kind of way? That kind of salvation has real meaning for our lives here and now. And so I want to get into what this could look like for you and me. And I think a lot of us, I had this, this feeling when I first read this story. Um, we, a lot of us, when we read this, we have this sense of guilt or this sense of obligation, we, we tell ourselves that we need to be more like the Samaritan who was healed. We need to be more grateful to God. And there is a level of truth to that, there is. But the point of this story is not to elicit guilt or obligation. The point of this story is to show that when we've experienced a real sense of God's power, God's mercy, God's healing, God's salvation in our lives, the only natural response is praise and thanksgiving for many of us. Though, if we're honest, we struggle with with praise, with thanksgiving, with what I'm gonna call gratitude. It's hard for us to picture ourselves falling down at the feet of Jesus, weeping and praising him for what he's done in our lives. Maybe we look back on our lives and feel like we've never really had a healing experience like this leper had. Or maybe salvation has always felt like something, yeah, it'll matter when I die, but it doesn't really have an effect on my life here and now. Or maybe... This is where I feel the pain of life is just, it's too much to bear right now. How could I be grateful in the midst of all this pain? Whatever it may be, when we look at this story of this grateful Samaritan, I think we see an example of what real, raw, honest gratitude can look like and how we can cultivate it in our lives. So with the last few minutes of our time together, I just want to look at sort of a simple guide to gratitude um, in three different stages. So I want to talk about three stages to gratitude. This is not the only way to practice gratitude. This is just a way that kind of I saw in this, in this leper, and I thought, how, how cool would that be if we could become people of gratitude like this? So the first stage is recognition. The second stage is request, and the third stage is response. Do you like that alliteration? I got my three R's, recognition, request, response. I'm trying my best to be a good preacher up here, okay? (laughs) So uh, three R's, okay? Let's begin uh, with R number one, recognition. Uh, First and foremost, I think it's so important that we recognize our desire, where do, we, where do we recognize that we desire God? Where do we desire God's mercy, God's healing, God's activity in our lives? For these lepers, probably wasn't that difficult to recognize, I desire to be healed, right? Um, they'd been living as outcasts, experiencing great pain. Like They probably had a desire to be healed, but sometimes... And I, and I love this. Even if there's a great need for God, for God's mercy or healing, sometimes there's, there's just not a strong desire for it, right? There's this other story in John 5 where this man had been sick, um, laying outside of a, a pool for like his entire life, for 40 years. And Jesus approached him, uh, and, and you would think that this man, you'd think it would be obvious that this man would have wanted to be healed, right? He'd been sick for, for 40 years, but I love how Jesus approaches this man. He, he, he walks up to him and he asks him an unexpected question. He says, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? It seems obvious. It seems like the answer would certainly be yes, but I think Jesus is getting at something here. You have to desire, not just healing, but, but God's activity. Where do you desire it? And I think we have to ask ourselves that same question. Do I want God to show up in this place in my life? Do I want to be made well. Do I recognize a specific desire, not just for healing, but for anything, for for any area in which I desire God to show up and act? This looks different for all of us, right? Some of us have desires for God to act in our emotional lives, our personal lives, our our spiritual lives, right? Some of us desire God to show up and act in our careers or in in our families, in our homes, in our personal lives, whatever it may be. Some of us, though, choose to ignore our desire because it, it seems too unrealistic or it feels like it would just be easier to not actually want it. It's, it's too difficult to actually have a desire. I'd rather just pretend that my needs or desires don't exist. I, I totally get that. It's way harder to have a desire that's not met than it is to just ignore that that desire is there at all. But if we don't actually recognize our desire and name it before God, we are so much less likely to actually be grateful when God shows up and and does something that we actually want and need. Okay, so that's the first stage, the recognition, recognizing. Okay, number two is the request. After we recognize our desire and and then act, we have to ask for God to actually do it, right? This requires a level of humility, a level of vulnerability, because we have to open ourselves up to to God to see us for what we really want. Um, our Our Western sort of culture, I think, has serious problems with this because we're so entitled. Are there any millennials here? Or, yeah, any? Or are we a Gen Z church now? I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting old. But man, us millennials, we take so much heat. Like, I, I just remember that was like the thing about millennials is they're just so entitled. But I think regardless of what generation you're a part of, this has kind of seeped into um, just our general kind of society, our general culture. We struggle with entitlement. And entitled people, they're not usually grateful people. Right? Entitled people expect things to be given to them without working toward it, and especially without asking for it that's why i think the request stage is one of the most difficult things for us to do and as i was thinking about this i was just reminded of what paul says in philippians and it's kind of a this verse has like so much in it but um in philippians 4 i think paul's getting at the relationship between gratitude and making a request to god he says this do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God. There's a sense in which like the gratitude stage comes in before we even make the request. It's not like us demanding God to do something. There's a sense in which even as we make requests, we're we're grateful for what God is doing. Cultivating a life of gratitude means being willing to ask for what we deeply desire and trust that God hears us, God sees us, and God knows what is best for us. So one, recognize. Two, request. That leads to the response stage. This is by far the most important stage of gratitude. The climax of the story that we just read is this one leper's response. To being healed. He falls at Jesus' feet, praises God, and and just expresses this profoundly grateful posture with his whole being. And this grateful Samaritan is really our model. He's our example for how we can respond to God's activity in our lives. Like I said earlier, wholehearted praise, wholehearted thanksgiving should just be a natural response, a natural overflow to God's mercy, God's healing, God's power in our lives. Well, let's be honest, this is so much easier when God does something miraculous like he did for the leper. It's pretty easy to be grateful for instant and immediate healing, but what about the times when it doesn't go the way we want? What about the very real pain and suffering that is present in our lives? Um, throughout the last few years, not only with COVID and everything going on in our lives, but I just, I feel this profound sense of awareness that many of us have of how anything can be taken from us, our, our careers, our health, our loved ones, they can be taken from us at any moment, and, and that's why it's so important to not be grateful only for the things that we have in life, but maybe a better word to use is to be grateful for the right person in our lives because ultimately, gratitude rests on the fact that we follow a good God, even when the circumstances of life seem to be overwhelmed with with darkness, brokenness, wounds, real hardship, right? Real pain that we all face. Sorry. I've had a difficult weekend, and I really believe this. I really believe that this is true. Um, And so I'm glad that I can say it because I actually believe it. Even even in the midst of of pain and hardship, um, we can be grateful. We can be grateful because God is with us right? We can be grateful because God's face is shining on us. Like, like the faces were shining on one another as we shared grace and peace, God's face shines upon us. And that is what it means to experience joy. God, pro- God does not cause pain, hardship, suffering, any of it, but God promises to be with us in pain and suffering. And that's why I love um, Adele Calhoun. She wrote the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, and this is how she defines gratitude gratitude is a loving and thankful response toward god for his presence with us and within this world though blessings can move us into gratitude it is not at the root of a thankful heart delight in god and his good will is the heartbeat of thankfulness that is what it means to truly be grateful to delight in god is the heartbeat of thankfulness. Yes, we count our blessings, right? Yes, we look around and th- and and thank God for all the gifts that God has given us. But ultimately, gratitude is rooted in the giver of the good gifts, not in the gifts in and of themselves. So if we desire to become people of joy, right? If we really want that, then practicing gratitude is where we have to start. So I want to invite you and me and all of us um, this week to try to recognize where we sense a desire for God's activity or presence in our lives. Where is that desire that you have, whether it be for mercy or healing or, or a deeper sense of God's activity in your life? And once you find that, I really do think it's important to start by finding that desire. But once you find it, What would it look like for you to ask God to to do something, uh, to help you? Really, God's probably, I say for God to show up or for God to act, God's probably already there and acting, so really it's more how do I become aware of God's presence and activity in my life? And then most importantly, how might we respond with praise and gratitude and thanksgiving? Because for the Grateful Samaritan, this looked like falling down at Jesus' feet to thank him. But what does your response of gratitude look like this week? Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodachicago.com.